If you would, take your Bibles tonight and turn to Matthew, the seventh chapter. Matthew, chapter seven, and be ready to read in just a moment at verse 24. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 24. Sure is good to see all of you again tonight. It's been a great day for me again today in the good city of Murfreesboro. Enjoyed a fine meal again tonight, and I appreciate that so very much. Um, at the meal tonight, I was offered uh, some tea, and I said, is it decaffeinated? And uh, she said, oh, no, it's caffeinated. And I think it was Ava who said, what's decaffeinated? And uh, I said, well, you know, it's in coffee and tea and chocolate and things like that, and it makes people kind of happy and alert. And I said, it makes me talk real fast. And I think everybody at the table got excited thinking, well, that's going to mean a 20-minute sermon tonight. (laughs) But I had decaffeinated, so don't get your hopes up too very much tonight. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew. And beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Now everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, I will liken him unto a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, and the winds blew, and the rains came and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Jesus made two things very clear in that section of Scripture. One of them is storms are going to come, and they will beat on your house. If you haven't experienced that yet, hang on. Sooner or later, you will. But he also taught in here something that was very needed and foundational. And that is that if our houses are to stand, they absolutely must be built on him and his word. It occurs to me as I think about this story that we've heard for so long and we sing with the kids that from all outward appearances, these houses probably looked very much the same, but they weren't the same. In fact, Luke records in his gospel that only one of these men dug deep. And the idea was that he was digging down deep so that he might hit rock. And once rock had been found, there was where he would build his home. His foundation would sit upon a rock. So the homes may have looked very much the same, but they weren't the same. And I want to tell you, as we sing the song, the foolish man paid little attention. And as the kids sing, the foolish man's house went splat. And I love that song. But I want to tell you, it's more than a kid's song. And it is so tragic because it happens every single day that somebody's house goes splat. Not only will Jesus have to be the foundation of our homes, he must fill every single room of our home. And that's what we're going to spend our time talking about tonight as we look at some of these things. First of all, I want you to key in on some passages with me in Ephesians, the third chapter and verse 16. Ephesians, the third chapter and verse 16. The Bible says in verse 16 that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. And then verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you may be rooted and grounded in love. 
There it is, Christ may dwell in your hearts. The word dwell there literally means to reside, to take up residence. And so that's what Jesus wants to do. Jesus wants to take up residence, if you will, in your home. In John, the 14th chapter, there's a really, really wonderful verse there. And uh, for those who have said that the Bible doesn't teach a personal relationship with the Lord, I, I think they've missed it. John 14 and verse 23 is about as intimate as it gets. But look at the language in John 14 and verse 23. It says that Jesus answered and said to, to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. I wonder, isn't, that, isn't that wonderful? To think about the Lord coming and making his home with you. That's what he wants to do. To live in your home, reside in your home, make his home in your home. And then we'll add one more. Let's go to Proverbs, the 24th chapter, and look at verse 3 and 4. Proverbs, the 24th chapter, and verse 3 and 4. And I think this says it very well as we make our way further into the lesson this evening. Proverbs 24, beginning in verse 3. It says, through wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. And then verse 4, by knowledge the rooms are filled. With all precious and pleasant riches. And so what that verse is saying is that when we give ourselves to the Lord and let the Lord rule in our lives as we have sung tonight, then all the rooms of the house are going to be filled with riches. And it's not talking about physical riches. It's talking about all the wonderful blessings that are so rich that God gives us as our homes are built upon Jesus. What we're going to do in tonight's lesson is we're going to go to each of the rooms in our homes and we're going to look at that. We're going to talk about how the Lord needs to impact each of those rooms in our home. And and when the Lord is as he should be in these rooms, the whole structure is going to be able to stand in the day of the storm. I want to begin with a room that's very little thought about probably. And I'm not saying that every house has one, but that is the library. Most all of us have some books at least, and there's a place where we keep the books. And so we talk about the library of your life. I'd like to suggest to you that this is the place of our minds. You know, the Bible talks an awful lot about the importance of the mind, and it talks about all kinds of different minds in the Bible. And it's important that we understand that everything really begins right here. Perhaps you've heard the saying that our thoughts, our thoughts lead to our actions, our actions done long enough turn into habits. Our habits form our character and our character ultimately leads to our destiny. And so what that means is that where you spend eternity begins right here. Right here in the way that you think. And so when we talk about the library tonight, there is one book that absolutely must be central in our library. And it is the Bible. The Word of God. It must be central in our homes. You know, years ago, there was a little joke or story that they used to tell. I haven't heard it in a long time. But they used to say that um, if you were ever in a courtroom and they did not have a Bible for someone to place his hand on as he took an oath, that what you could do in a situation like that is you could just look around the courtroom and you could ask if there was anybody there that was a member of the Church of Christ. And if somebody was found that was a member of the Church of Christ, you could take your hand and you could put it on his head and it'd be about the same thing as putting your hand on a Bible. That was what they said about us years ago. That we were known for being people of the book. We were known for having deep knowledge of the Scriptures. Again, I haven't heard that joke in a long time. And I fear from what I am hearing from a number of sources that the news might not be too good. 
My friend Lowell Salee, who I think preached here in Murfreesboro for a little while, used to go around to various places holding gospel meetings, and he would do a survey in some of these places for a while. He asked people, he said, you don't have to put your name on it, but he asked them the question, do you read your Bible every day? And this is what comes in. And if you notice there, what we've basically got is about an average of about 25%. One in four people, and these are not just average people. These are people that are members of the church. And only one in four says they read their Bible every day. I want to tell you, that's pretty pathetic. His second question was, do you study your Bible every day? And I don't know exactly what he asked about that, but maybe that was the idea of not just doing a casual reading, but actually sitting down and cross-referencing and thinking and pondering and meditating and really studying the Bible. Again, the numbers get even lower when that is considered. I want to tell you folks, that's pretty bad. From the looks of that, you could take what a lot of us know and put it in a thimble. We've got to be studying the Word. We've got to dig deep so that our homes are truly built in the strong way that God intended for them to be built. Here's a few things that are going to happen when the Bible is preeminent in our lives. The first thing it's going to do is it's just going to keep you out of trouble. Young people, listen to me tonight. There are so many young people in the world today that are getting themselves in terrible situations Because they never had anybody to tell them where those things lead. They never had anybody to warn them that that's a dead-end road. But the Bible gives us warnings about so many things. And that's one of the reasons I love the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 1, Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 25 beginning talks about how that if you'll just listen to me, you can be kept out of trouble. And in Proverbs chapter 1, wisdom is personified here. Wisdom is speaking as though she is a a wonderful, wise woman that is calling out to us. But basically the word here is is that if you don't listen to wisdom, if you don't listen to what God has to give you, you know what he's going to do one day? He's going to laugh at you. He's going to laugh at you when you face calamities that he tried to warn you about. In Proverbs 1 beginning in verse 25, listen. It says, because you disdained all my counsel and you would have none of my reproof, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. And so the Bible is given so that it will keep us out of trouble. And some of the most angry kids that you have in the world today are kids that are suffering consequences for things that nobody ever warned them about. And they're so angry. It's not the kids who had parents who were, who were really enforcing things that are upset. It's the kids who did not have that. Another thing the Bible will do is it will protect you against Satan's attacks. You remember Matthew 4? What was it that Jesus said with every single one of those temptations? You remember what it was, don't you? Three times the devil tried to tempt him into doing things that he should not. And his response every single time was, It is written. Jesus knew the Word of God. And here's the first thing you need to know. You can't fight with what you don't know. But Jesus knew the Scriptures, and when He was tempted, He pulled a Scripture, He quoted Scripture, and He stood on Scripture. It will protect you against the attacks of Satan. And you can rest assured that Satan is going to do everything he can to keep you out of that book. Somebody once said... This book will keep you from sin, 
or sin will keep you from this book. And what's happening all across our country is sin is keeping people from this book. And as a result, homes are in terrible, terrible, terrible messes. Even kids were giving me testimonials coming out last night of, of things that they see in their own classrooms. Of problems that are occurring in so many places because of a crumbling of the home. Turn to Isaiah 26 and verse 3 for our next point. In Isaiah 26 and verse 3, we see another benefit of the Bible being central in our home. And I love this point. It's the Bible will just keep you calm and steady. It'll just keep you calm and steady. It just gives you something that kind of holds you and anchors you as you go through the various storms of life. In Isaiah 26 and verse 3, God says... You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. There's a promise that we can be kept in perfect peace when our mind is stayed on God. There's the idea of making God and his word central in our homes. We've got to wear this thing out. At home, I have a plaque that's in my study that a woman gave me. And it says a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. And I want to tell you there's an awful lot of truth to that. A Bible that is worn out and the pages are tattered and torn and falling out. The Bible might be falling apart, but the man or woman isn't. And that's why Jesus said that we must build our homes on the rock, on Him and His Word, in the library of our homes. Let me move to another, and that is the family room. As we talk about the family room tonight, I want to talk about how the Bible structures a family and want to look at how that's being attacked. The first thing the Bible emphasizes is that, is that dad is to be the head of the home. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, beginning in verse 25, listen to what our Lord said. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. The Apostle Paul writes and says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So the Bible makes it very plain that the husband, the dad, is to be the head of the home. And the wife and the children are to be following under his lead. And you know, even that's being viciously attacked across the country. The one thing the devil is trying to do is he's trying to redefine roles and change everything and get people totally confused. We got kids who don't know what a boy is supposed to grow up and be and do we got girls that don't know what a girl's supposed to grow up and be and do. Satan has confused that totally in our country. And it's an effort to undermine everything. A few years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention came out with a statement that said a wife should submit to the loving leadership of her husband. I'm not endorsing the convention, but I want to tell you what they had to say in summation is exactly right. A wife is to submit to the loving leadership of her husband. And yet across the whole country, there was a storm of people upset about that statement. It was all over the news. How dare you say the 
man is to be the head of the home. And yet that is God's structure. And let me tell you, that's not a position to gloat about. When you understand how heavy that responsibility is, you won't do any gloating. You're too burdened with what you've got to do to, be any, to do any strutting at all. Because what your p- responsibility is is what I call like a point man. In Vietnam, the point man was the man who was responsible for his troops. He was the one who would be watching out for mines so that people did not step on mines. He took everybody under his care. He felt tremendous responsibility as the point man. And that's what a man in a family is. He's trying to get his whole family through the minefield of this world. I want to tell you, that is something that is crucial. Every time I look at somebody's head, I see some eyes. And that's the idea here. There's got to be somebody who has tremendous vision for where this family is going. And he leads with the vision of Christ to try to take his family in the right direction. The Bible says that mom is to manage or keep the house. Turn to 1 Timothy 5 and verse 13. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 13. We'll actually come on down to verse 14. Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house... And give no opportunity for the adversary to speak reproachfully. Uh, Here, mom is given the responsibility to manage the house. i tell you what I say about the lady of the house. She's the one that just kind of makes that place a place where you can just go, Oh. She's the one that builds the nest that you love to come home to at the end of the day. She's the one that gives the whole home the the setting that it has. I'm all the time telling my wife, you're the core of this thing. (laughs) And there's no question about it. That doesn't take away the vision that I'm trying to lead with and me being the head of the home. But I want to tell you, everybody rallies around May May. Because she sets the atmosphere so much of that home. Some years ago, John Gray wrote a book called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, and that was a way of saying it just seems like we're on different planets sometimes. But he wrote about the modern woman, and what he had to say, I believe, is spot on. I've read it in several places. I've had nobody to get upset about it, nobody to debate it. Here's what he says. Modern women are overworked, overstressed, and they commonly feel unsupported and overwhelmed with good reason. At no other time in history has so much been expected of them. At least five days a week, they put on a uniform and they march into an eight to 12 hour battle. When they come home, they feel the need to clean house, make dinner, do laundry, love and nurture the kids, and also be pleasing and happy as well as romantically receptive to their mates. It's just too much to ask of them. It's making them feel split inside. At work, women are required to behave according to the traditional masculine rules of conduct. But at home, they have to switch to being warm and giving and feminine. It's no wonder that women complain that they need a wife to greet them with love and tenderness at the end of the day. Even a contemporary stay-home mother has a more difficult job than her own mother did because with most other mothers at work and her kids' playmates at daycare, she lacks the traditional company and support of other women. 
In the past, a woman was proud to say that she was a full-time wife and mother. Now she may even feel embarrassed when people ask, uh, well, what do you do? Isolated from the support of other women, she must go at it alone, as the value of her commitment is largely unacknowledged by the world. Still, while women now need more support than at any other time in history, men also miss the ego boost that they traditionally received from their mates. Let me continue with one more paragraph. Women are affected much more adversely than men by career stress. For the pressures of work outside the home have doubled their load. On the job, they give as much as the men do. But when they get home, instinct takes over and they continue giving. It's hard for a woman to come home and forget the problems of the day and relax when her programming says, cook more, clean more, love more, share more, nurture more, give more, do more. Think of it. Tasks that used to fill a woman's whole day now must be done in just a few hours. Along with providing there's just not enough time, support, or energy to fulfill her biological yearnings for a beautiful, peaceful home and a loving, harmonious, and healthy family, she just feels overwhelmed by too much to do. And I'm suggesting to you that in there, there is attack. There's an attack on the man as the head of the family. Mom is tired and worn out and frazzled, and all of that is working also at the same time to work upon this thing. And then children are to obey. Turn to Ephesians, the sixth chapter, and notice what it says in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. And children are to take their role. Dad, the head of the home, mom managing the home, children being obedient in the home. Quickly, I'll share a few things that I think are important about the family room. It needs to be a place where we can relax. Are we ever in it? <laughs> where we can relax and we can talk and we can enjoy each other's company. It's a place where everyday problems can be discussed. And I want to tell you, you need to learn to think of it that way. When your children have problems, that's an opportunity. Don't get too bothered by that. It's an opportunity to talk to them about what they're facing. And to, to, to gradually peel the onion back until you get to what's really going on. And then talk about how God can help with that and pray with them about that. It's an opportunity to help them to see that when we have problems, we go to God. It's a place where games are played. I know there's no law on that, but you know, it, it used to be that people played games. There used to be a lot of board game kind of stuff going on. But people play games. We don't do that much anymore. There's a lot of game playing going on, but it's, it's, it's like they're out there and I'm over here and, and there's no real interaction. I think, we need, I think it'd be great if we could just kind of get back to slowing things down a little bit. And just letting this be a place where some games are played. It's a place where family devotions are held. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
beginning in verse 6. It, it's showing the need to keep God as the context of our home always. And, and uh, daily discussions about God in our home and study of God's Word is so very important. In Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 6, Moses on the plains of Moab says to the children of Israel, These words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. There's the idea of God just being the context of the whole day. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, as frontlets between your eyes. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. I enjoyed the meal this week when I went in the kitchen and, and saw that it had up there that says, They ate their bread from house to house, and their hearts were full of gladness and simplicity of heart. I mean, just God's Word plastered right there on the wall. I've been in other homes where you'll see a little, little thing on the wall that maybe says something like, As for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. I love that. That's what God's talking about. God is the whole atmosphere of the place. He's talked about. There's things said about him. There's things that remind you about him. A place where family devotions are held. And let me tell you one of the great reasons to have those family devotions. Look at verse 2 of Deuteronomy 6. I'm indebted to Wilson Adams for this good point. Wilson pointed out the word dynasty. You know, when, a, when somebody wins a championship one time, we get all excited. When they do it twice, we call it a repeat. If they do it three times, we start using a whole different word. A dynasty. And Deuteronomy 6 is showing us that this is how we can have a dynasty. Verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, that's one, and your son, that's two, and your grandson. There's your whole dynasty right there. You, your son, your grandson. But you know where it starts? It starts right here. And the family room needs to be a place where we can have that very kind of thing. And it's a place where Jesus lives and he feels right at home. Remember how comfortable he was in the house of Mary and Martha? The Bible shows him in their home quite often. I get the idea that, that was one of his favorite places to be. And in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38, it says, It happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She also had a sister called Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And I, you know, I thought, Martha's not bad. Martha's doing a good thing. And I wonder if the Lord would have said anything at all had she not grumbled. You know, I think about 1 Peter 4, it says, be hospitable without grumbling. Later on in the Bible, you see them in the same kind of situation. Mary's at his feet, and Martha's serving, and Jesus doesn't say a word. But he says to her here, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. And so here's some things that are important in that room. But yet this room absolutely has come under siege. Years ago, I used to read a piece. I'll give you just a little bit of it. Talks about a few months before I was born, my dad met a stranger that was new to our small Tennessee town. From the beginning, dad was fascinated with this enchanting newcomer and invited him into the family. As I grew up, I never questioned his place in our family. Mom taught us to love the word of God. Dad taught me to obey it, but the stranger was our storyteller. He talks about how the stranger was an incessant talker and a lot of times mom would just get up and go to her room and read her Bible and pray and it mentions, I wonder now if she ever prayed that the stranger would leave. The stranger would use four-letter words, but was never confronted. 
He offered us beer and alcohol, made cigarettes look tasty, and talked freely, way too freely about sex. And it goes on to say, what was his name? We always just called him TV. There is no question about it whatsoever. Our world has been greatly affected, attacked and damaged by that stranger that we have allowed in our home and we allow to do things that we would not allow our children to do. It's under attack. Outside recreation is killing spirituality. I came across a quote several years ago that says, if we can build an arena in every city across this empire, these Christians will forget about their God. That was kind of the philosophy. Let's just build an arena in every city across this empire and these Christians will forget about their God. It has happened in the United States of America. Churches are empty and stadiums are packed full. It's killing us. It's absolutely killing us. Kids are zipping through this room as we rush from one activity to another. And the families are tired and frazzled and pooped and wore out and not much happening of meaning between them. Computers and computer games, sometimes you, you can't even break through and get attention because it's all absorbed right, right there. You know, there are some things that are not sinful, but Jesus said they choked the word. In Matthew, the 13th chapter, as Jesus told the parable of the sower, he mentioned one type of ground and he referred to it as thorny ground. I heard Sewell Hall say one time, it, he said, it just seems to me that most of us Christians are probably thorny Christians. When he talked about the thorny ground, he said in verse 22, that he who received the word among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. And so this room is greatly under attack. Let me move to another. The dining room. Or the kitchen. As we enter this room, I want to share with you a story I heard years ago from Brother Connie Adams. Connie said that uh, after his mom died, he said, we decided that we were going to have a yard sale. We had to do something with some of the things that were there. And he, he said, among the things that we decided that we would have to do something with was the family dinner table. And he said, it was the one item that I was so disturbed about that it was in the yard sale. He said, I thought of all the stories that we had told there and all the laughter and the games and Bible verses that had been memorized there and all the things that had taken place around the table. He said, the thing went through the whole day and it had made it through the entire yard sale without selling. And he said, I was inwardly happy that it had not sold. He said, but finally, at the end of the day, a man came and he mulled around for a while. And then he stopped in front of that dining table. And he said, sir, how much do you want for this table? And he said, I told him. He said, I'll take it. He said, I helped him load it up on the back of his truck. And I watched him as he pulled away from our, our home that I'd grown up in. He said, and when that thing rolled down the road, he said, I watched and then I went inside and I cried like a baby. I wonder how many kids today would cry if the family dinner table was sold. How much are we doing there? How much meaningful interaction is going on there? 
It's a great place for morning devotionals. One of the things that I enjoyed doing with my son was sitting at the table and studying the book of Proverbs before he went off to school. Sometimes it wouldn't be but just a few principles, but it was the thing that got him through the elementary years and on into the junior high years, and I just have to believe that it made a major difference, and it's so important. It's so important. My friend Gary Sandusky said he sat down with his kids one day at the breakfast table and he said they were eating their cereal. He said, all right, boys, let's talk about the Bible a little bit here. And they said, oh, dad, have we got to do that again? He said, give me your cereal bowls. He reached over and he grabbed their cereal bowls and they began to get upset that he had taken their cereal. And he said, if you don't eat this, you can't eat that. Either way, you're going to die. That's right. Either way, you're going to die. We got to understand the importance of making sure that this is a part of our appetites. Yet I'm afraid that there's often more an appetite for prestige. Men seeking higher and higher positions, becoming workaholics, no time for their children. Reminds me of the saying that says, no man on his deathbed says, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. It just doesn't happen. You know what people talk about on their deathbed? They talk about people. All of a sudden, they turn toward people. And all that matters is people. All that matters is family. And yet, somehow, that seems to get forgotten along the way. A few years ago, I was reading from a man whose daddy died. And afterward, he said, I was going through some things. And I got a screwdriver. And I got into his tackle box. He said, I found some of the normal things of fishermen, worn out lures, dried salmon eggs, rubbery worms that were fused together, tangled line and rusty hooks. None of it was any use anymore. And he said, uh, my dad was a rabid fisherman. He loved fishing with a passion, but he rarely took me fishing. And he never really taught me how to fish. And as he dropped that thing in the garbage can, he said, I began to weep. He says, for the life of me, I couldn't have told you why. It was just a rotting mess of useless worms and hooks, but somehow it represented my father. The same father who never told me he loved me, never told me that he was proud of me, and never even hugged me. The only thing I had left from my dad was an old tackle box and silence. He said, and at that moment, son, he said, everything turned to anger. anger. I was angry at myself. I was angry at my father. I was angry at God. And I remember crying out and saying, this is it. This is all I get. This is all I have of my father. And he said it was at that moment that something hit him that basically said, well, what about you, big guy? If you were to die today, what would be in the tackle box of your life? He said at that moment, he said, I decided to start doing something. And what he started doing was writing letters to his children. He would write letters to his children at meaningful events, at other times in life, things he wanted them to hear, things he wanted them to know. They had letters from Dad. And one day when he's gone, they'll still have them. What do we have? True story. About a boy who kept asking his dad, Dad, can we build a tree house? He said, oh, son, he said, yeah, we'll do that, but I, I just don't have a lot of time right now. We'll do it later, okay? And over and over, he'd ask about building a treehouse, and he always got the same story. Till one day, the boy was hit by an automobile. True story. And on his deathbed in the hospital, he said, well, Dad, he said, I don't guess I'll ever get to build that treehouse. 
Live with that. Live with that. I want to tell you, preachers get pretty busy and preachers spend a lot of time. But the one thing I don't want to ever happen, I don't want my children to lose access to me. I don't want them to be shut off from me. They'll have a whole lot of preachers in their life, but they're not going to have just one dad. When I was working on this for a lecture series, maybe it's because I was thinking about these things, but the kids kept coming upstairs along with my niece and nephew that I'm staying with this week. And they'd come upstairs and they'd say, can you give me a picture of a, a flower? And I had to print off a picture of a flower. And they'd color that and bring it back. And then the boys would come up, can, can you do me another monster truck? I'd do another monster truck. And they'd, they'd color that. And they just did that for, I mean, one after the other. This went on and on and on. I'm not getting any of this worked on. And I want to tell you, before we got through, <laughs> I mean, the whole place looked like an art studio. But still, my attitude was, somehow or another, I'll get this sermon done. Somehow or another, it'll get done. But right now, I've got to be a dad. And sometimes those are the things that are very important for us to think about. There's an appetite for material things. Look in Luke 22, uh, 12 and verse 20. In Luke 12 and verse 20, there was, a, there was a guy who kept talking about, I'll do this, I'll tear down my barns, I'll build bigger barns, and I'll store all my crops and my goods. And he didn't say a thing about God. And in verse 20, God said to him, Thou fool, this night your soul will be required of you, and then whose will these things be which you have provided? Materialism, eating us up. It's what I call affluenza. It's an epidemic sweeping through the whole country. How much better it would be if we tried to live our lives a little simpler. And then there's an appetite for worldly pleasures. You've heard it many times. Let's look at it again. 1 John chapter 2. Re- hear it with fresh ears tonight. 1 John chapter 2 beginning in verse 15. God warns us and he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. How are our houses being built? All I'm asking tonight is this. Jesus sits in the dining room of your life. Does he like what he sees? The place where he sees your appetites. Is he comfortable there? Does he feel at home? And then I want to talk about the matter of the bedrooms. The first bedroom I'm going to talk about is the husband and wife bedroom. This room was meant to be a beautiful room. It was meant to be a room where a husband and a wife would celebrate all that they shared together. In fact, I refer to what happens in that room as the celebration. It's the celebration of all that we are and all that we have in our union with God, in our union with one another, in our doing life together and battling through life and working through things together. It is the celebration of everything that we share together. And I want to tell you, it's not nasty. 
In Hebrews 13 and verse 4, God himself said in Hebrews 13 and verse 4, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed is undefiled. The God of heaven who designed it, it was his idea, looks down upon the happenings of the lawful marriage bed and says, That is exactly what I had in mind. And smiles with joy of the things that a husband and wife enjoy. But he says, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. I remember one time speaking much more plainly on this subject in a, in a place on a special weekend kind of thing. And I never will forget a lady coming up to me afterwards. She said, thank you so much for preaching on that. She said, I grew up in a home where my parents basically presented the idea that it was just nasty. She said, that's the impression I had. It's just nasty. And she said, I took that into my marriage and it almost destroyed my marriage. You know, we're all the time telling young people, you sin if you do. You sin if you do. And we're talking about sexual relations before marriage. But do you realize there is a passage in the Bible that says to married people, you sin if you don't. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It says in verse 3, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Basically, he's saying that your bodies belong to each other. Verse 5, do not deprive one another. I want to tell you, I don't get it. I don't get it. I can't. The number of times I've talked to young couples that are having trouble in this room, I don't get it. But I know one thing. We better get it together. We better, we better talk. We better work. We better do whatever it happens, whatever has to happen to make this room what it's supposed to be. Because this verse says, You do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer, and you come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And I'm not trying to be crude, but you know what the simplest commentary on that verse is? God is saying, I want you to do this. I don't want you to quit except for a little while. And then I want you to get right back to it. That's exactly what the verse is teaching. Lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's an old country music song that said, It's so easy not to care about what's right and what's wrong. It's too hot to fish, it's too hot for golf, and it's too cold at home. And that does not justify what he does. Does not justify what she does. But we better make sure that we're trying to bring Christ into that room. And it begins with things like, Good morning, baby. You sure are pretty today. Our children are so blessed to have you. You're the best. That builds the atmosphere. It builds the atmosphere that culminates in this room. Men especially need help in this regard. I remember uh, as far as the romantic end of it. I remember one time talking to a guy that he was having problems in his marriage. I mean, I knew that thing was about to blow. I said, listen, man, you got to start, you got to start warming up. You got to start, you got to learn to be romantic. And he didn't have a clue about that. I didn't have a, I mean, he had no clue at all. I said, I said, listen, I said, just take her to a park, get you a little sack lunch, sit on the bench together, talk, eat that little sack. Lunch. He said, 
this is making me sick. I thought, buddy, you are about to blow the whole thing. And that's exactly what he did. Y'all recognize that guy right there? His name is General Norman Schwarzkopf, Jr., he is commanding officer of Operation Desert Storm. Americans came to know him as Stormin' Norman. You know what I heard his wife called him? Pookie Bear. <laughs> I want to tell you, that guy's a bad man. You don't mess with this guy. But somehow this guy evidently knew how to go out and be Stormin' Norman. But he also knew how to take that helmet off. And that hat off and be pookie bear. You know, one of the things I love about God is that God is the one who's teaching us all this. In Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 5. I know we've got to move fast. The lesson's going to be quickly yours here. In Deuteronomy 24 and verse 5. It says, when a man has taken a new wife. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war. Or be charged with any business. You say, well, wait a minute. He's not going to, be char he's not going to go out with, to do war and he's not going to be charged with any business. What do you want him to do? <laughs> he says he shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he's taken. Isn't that beautiful that God says, I want you to stay home and I want you to love that woman. And I want your marriage to get off to a great start. Bring happiness to your wife whom you have taken. Because I want to tell you, it is no good to win abroad. If you lose at home. Let me also encourage you to settle your problems before, before you leave. And even before you go into this room if, care, if possible. A lot of couples carry a lot of anger sometimes to bed. A lot of times there's the shame of having to hear your wife cry as she goes off to sleep because of something hurtful you've said. I remember one time uh, hearing about a couple that had fought the night before. It had not been settled. You know, God said, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. The next morning, she still got it on her mind. She's just want, she just can't hardly get on until this thing gets settled. And she was going to be the, the first to leave that morning. And so she left a note. And the note said, Charlie, I hate you. Love, Martha. And isn't that kind of the way it is? You know, we just get at it and we'll just fight. But deep down, we love and we're trying to work through it. And those things mingle together. D. Bowman said one time, <laughs> he said, Norma was up, uh, I was upset at Norma. And he said, I had my finger in her face. And he said, I was really giving her what for? And he said, all of a sudden, as I'm pointing at my finger in her face, he, had, he said, her eyes went cross-eyed. <laughs> and he said, What? And she said, your fingernails need cutting. <laughs> and he laughed and that was over. We need to settle these things. And yet this room has been abused. All over the country, things are like out there like life is short, having a fair. Pornography at our fingertips. So easy to get to. It's a lot different than days gone by. D. Bowman also told about a lady who heard one of his sermons on pornography, an older lady. 
And he said, as she walked out that day, she said, Brother Bowman, you won't have to worry about any of that pornography stuff in our home. We don't even have a pornograph to play it on. (laughs) We do have a pornograph to play it on, and it's as easy as your fingertips. Jesus said, if you have to cut it out of your life, cut it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. But it also is a bedroom called the kids' bedroom where you can read Bible stories. You can read other stories to them. And if you're like my home, sometimes your mom and dad would say, go to your room. Go to your room. And that always meant something else. Proverbs 29 and verse 15. Proverbs 29 and verse 15. In Proverbs 29 and verse 15, the Bible says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. And we're living in a society where even that's being attacked, this idea of, of uh, punishing your children. I think they get it better than we do. When Bethany was little, we used to use a switch. Nothing else worked. She feared the switch. We'd use a little switch. We used to put them up in the freezer. We'd put them in the, in the freezer because they stayed good and limber in there. If it was green, it stayed green a good long while, so we'd keep them up in the freezer. One time we were packing for a vacation, getting ready to go. I was in the bedroom packing. I didn't know it, but Bethany had gotten up on a step stool where she could reach up into the freezer, and she went into the freezer and got those switches and brought them to me and says, Daddy, pack these. You're going to need them. <laughs> Isn't that something? They get that. All right, it's after 8 o'clock. Let me finish up. The closet. It's only one thing you need to use your closet for. Don't hide stuff in it. A closet, according to Jesus, is not a place where you hide. It's a place where you reveal. You go into your closet and you talk to your father who's in the secret place. Don't hide things in your closet. And your workshop needs to be a place where God works on you. We are his workmanship. Let him work on you. To make you everything that you ought to be. When I was growing up, I'd hear those old timers. They'd knock at the end of a sermon like this. And they'd say, the Lord is knocking at the door of your heart tonight. The door is being knocked on by the Lord. And I want to tell you, it was, it was, it was wonderful to think about. It, and it was challenging to think about. It, and you would think he's preaching right at you. They'd use that to appeal to the non-Christian to obey the gospel. But you know what? Revelation 3 and verse 20 was not written to the non-Christian. It was written to the Christian. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. That was written to Christians. And what God is saying, Jesus is saying, is I'm having a hard time getting in. Let me in. Let me in your home. Let me dine with you. Let me be your friend. Let me fill every room. Of this home. Let him in ere he is gone. Let him in the Holy One. Jesus Christ the Father's Son. Let him in. Thank you. You've listened well tonight. Maybe I needed caffeine. (laughs) I appreciate you listening so carefully. If you need to obey the gospel tonight. Repenting of your sins. Confessing Jesus as the Son of God. And being baptized to have all your sins washed away. We urge you to come. If in any way we can help you. Come while we stand. And as we sing.